recently, uh, I had the opportunity of buying a pair of trail shoes. They're like sort of fancy uh, running shoes. And the idea was that I could start running again. Um, I used to run a bit when I was at university and after university. Um, I bought these really cool running shoes uh, when I was in London and they were super advanced and specially uh, for my feet and then I took a mountain biking and found like this swamp and my mum wouldn't even let us have like the boots anywhere near the house because it stunk them up so this is kind of like the first pair I'd had after this uh, stinking pair that cost me a fortune and I had to throw away in the second week um, so I got these pair of running shoes and um, it may surprise you to hear I didn't immediately um, enter a bunch of ultra marathons. I really like we're in this now, this season of you don't just run a marathon, you run a whole series of them, or you just like cross the Serengeti Desert or something, and, and that's kind of something to aim for. Um, but I got these new shoes, and so I thought I'd ease back into uh, running. And uh, so I would just do like sort of a, a, a mile here, a few miles, and I'm sort of uh, gradually uh, increasing uh, the distance I run. And um, there is a, a truth that uh, runners uh, sort of perpetuate among themselves. And uh, uh, one of them is this 80-year-old, um, his name's Joss Naylor, but he's known locally in the Lake District as Iron Joss. And he's just a shepherd, uh, but apparently he's very good at fell running, um, which is uh, proper running up the, uh, um, the sort of hills and uh, mountains of the Lake District. And they talk about building up miles in your legs. They, the idea amongst runners is that you build up strength and muscle by years and years of training. You don't suddenly buy a pair of shoes from JD Sports and start doing uh, sort of marathons uh, 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 across continents. Um, it's something that you sort of gradually build up to and you, you develop these miles in your legs. And I think faith is a lot like this too. When newcomers... Uh, come to faith they rarely immediately start preaching from the front they rarely start planting new churches they rarely start um, exhibiting signs of lots of miles in their legs they're kind of learners and they're um, they're sort of uh, slowly sort of uh, grown in the in the church context and the the idea is that they listen uh, about the basics from experienced Christians. You know, Christians who have seen it all, who have seen the highs and lows, who have endured everything from a personal crisis of faith to church splits to whatever heresies coming up next. And so the new Christians get to learn something about that so that they can uh, go the distance uh, when they are tested personally and so we we move forward gradually now the bible is fundamental to our faith we are people of the word it is something crucial to us and and hopefully everyone in this room has some understanding that the bible has something to say when it comes to our faith but the thing is when you read the bible you have to do it with care and wisdom it's um, oh, my daughter told this right. What are the um, what books 
do stars like to read? Comet books. Ah, oh, that was great. And th- th- that wasn't planned, but it, it just made me laugh. Um, and, but the Bible's not a comic book. The Bible is not something like just easy reading that you can dip in and out of and sort of get a warm feeling inside. It is uh, full of different types of literature. And, it, and it's one that we have to approach with a certain degree of reverence and a certain degree of experience. Um, when new believers come to faith, we don't immediately um, just give them a Bible and go, get on with that. We hopefully direct them to passages that we found helpful. Perhaps we give them uh, the John's Gospel so that they don't get a chance to read some of the wackier stuff. Um, and uh, often Christians use Bible reading guides, you know, the ones that give them a little bit of context give them some sort of insight as to what the author's trying to say. Because it is something that needs to be uh, uh, looked at with kind of miles in our legs, with a, with a degree of uh, experience and knowledge. Now, if we um, read the Bible like a normal book, we, found, we look at Genesis and it's a little bit crazy, and there's some weird stuff going on. But it's still quite interesting. There's a lot of dynamics in there. You go, oh, okay, you know, some of it can be a bit of a, a page-turner. And then you get to Exodus, and, and that's a new story. And, and, and you can see a direction of travel. While generous, Genesis can be sort of uh, stories that the, the connectedness sometimes can be hard to join together, Exodus, we can see this move of God. We can see God doing something wonderful with his people and then you get to Leviticus and it's got all this ancient ritual in that we are very unfamiliar with there is lots and lots of talk of entrails now if you are Iron Joss you are sort of fairly familiar with the the workings of a sheep and you're not made uncomfortable but to you and I um, who would rather all our food came pre-packaged and pre-cooked, the idea of entrails is slightly unnerving. And then it talks uh, in terms of definitions of evil, but it becomes incredibly pedantic and detailed. And you're like, why does God care about those particular things? They seem inordinately precise. And so... You're reading the Bible and you've managed to get through Genesis and Exodus and then you hit Leviticus and you go, yeah, you know what? I'm not sure what this has got to do at all with that person who talked about uh, Jesus to me and how Jesus loves me and died for me. And and it just seems really difficult. And so the people without miles in their legs come across Leviticus and they stumble and they fall. But simply speaking... Seen through a um, knowledge of Jesus, seen through an awareness of who he is and what he's done, the terms of Leviticus are simply God going deeper with his people. You know, he'd given them broad brushstrokes with the Ten Commandments and stuff, but he wanted a developed and precise relationship with his people. It's a bit like uh, me... And my wife at home, you know, we we love each other and it's just a honeymoon each and every day. But I've realised over the years that there are sometimes particular details 
that it is helpful to acknowledge. One of them is that I'm really good at leaving open cupboard doors and drawers. You know, I go in there, find it, and then wander off. And Sam comes in, and it looks like some sort of, uh, um, sort of unearthly spirit has come in and opened all the drawers in the house and then sort of wandered off. And it's a detail of our relationship that... Uh, I close doors and drawers and anything else that I open and I put back things where I found them because it makes our relationship a little bit calmer and a little bit easier. And so Leviticus is a bit like that, God being a little bit precise what he loves and what he doesn't and and the things that he wants us to know and it means that he can come near his people a little bit more. So if you ever in your, um, if you could have a look at Leviticus chapter 1 with me. Right at the beginning, it says this. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. Everyone say, without defect. defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Right at the beginning of this book of Leviticus, we discover that um, folk get to choose animals from their flocks and herds and that they can sacrifice them to God, that this is something that he welcomes. And that this sacrifice has a spiritual function. It is not just... Uh, God likes killing things. It is something, uh, there is a transaction that goes on. You bring an offering to God, and uh, God was um, sort of understood to be specifically around this tent of meeting. You would bring your offering there. Uh, it w- the, the animal uh, would be killed in honor of God, and there would be a spiritual function where that animal would atone for your sins. It would make up for them. The animal hadn't done anything wrong, but there was a transaction where God would say, you know what, you've killed this. There, there's a, pi- a price has been paid for the things that you have done wrong. And there was this understanding in the people that this is how it worked. So the offences against God could be removed and the prospect of God's judgment could be appeased. And so we have this cleanliness, and we have this uh, blamelessness that comes in. And it meant that God could come near, and uh, the, the people realized that, they, that, um, that God had kind of forgiven them their sins, and he could bring comfort, and he could bring blessing, and bring direction. And we find each of those with the uh, Israelites over the years. Now, you and I, um, we're not part of ancient Israel. The, still the idea of killing animals in sacrifice to God seems foreign and alien. Hands up if you have ever sacrificed an animal to God. 
Now, it's interesting, it's quite foreign and strange to us. And while we're often happier with the New Testament, the Old Testament speaks in this way, and we go, oh, I'm not sure what's going on. But the thing is, we've got Crawley Police Station up the road. We know something of law. We know something of offence. We know something of guilt. We know something of uh, court cases and legal proceedings and making a decision whether someone is in the wrong or not. And we know about imprisonment. So the, the concepts that Israel's dealing with, it's, they're familiar to us. We're not a culture that has forgotten right and wrong, that has, uh, um, that has sort of pushed aside all these different things. This idea of sin and guilt and blame and justice, they still exist. They just don't have the entrails attached to them um, that we find out uh, in the Old Testament. As you wonder why God made such a fuss about killing and blood and guts in the Old Testament, it is really good and it is always good to see it through the lens of Jesus in the New Testament. A lot in the Old Testament can seem confusing to the 21st century mind, but it suddenly becomes a lot clearer when you look at it through the lens of Jesus. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter 1. One Peter one, and we're going to start um, in a verse we've already looked at, just to give a little bit of setting. It says this in one Peter one verse eighteen: For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. It was but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish. Everyone say without blemish. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Everyone say my sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. The slaughter of bulls and goats and sheep and the menagerie of other different animals that you find in the Old Testament, they were signs. In themselves, they're nothing. But they were signs pointing to something that would happen, that would have significance, that would have meaning. That suddenly the transactions that they believed happened through the animals, it would actually work out that this Jesus was coming. And, and Peter uses these Old Testament memories to tell us really what happens when Jesus came. When we trust in Jesus, when we listen to him, when we uh, hope in eternity through him, we get cleansed before God he looks at us and he doesn't see all the different things that Rachel and Rachel and Barry and Kevin have done wrong he sees what Jesus has done and suddenly he doesn't go at the end of life right I've got all this judgment that I've stored up against Barbara and Ruth and Sue 
because Jesus has paid the price. And so there is this twin benefit of being cleansed um, and being uh, excused the judgment that we rightly endure. And so the good news of our faith that was uh, hinted at and whispered at in Leviticus is kind of uh, loudly uh, pronounced in Peter's words. Because of what Jesus has done, we are seen as pure and he is pleased with us. We are pure and he is pleased with us. I don't know what state you come to church on a Sunday morning. But I've got, even from last week, quite a lot of things that God could um, tally up against me. um, Where I'm very much not pure. Where I'm the last person that should be telling anyone about Jesus. And I can guarantee that the consequences of my behaviour would not be God's pleasure, but God's frown and his punishment. But because of Jesus, things are made right. And so the shame and guilt and fear that often uh, comes against us, we are freed from. And then, um, before we move on, we should take that in and just enjoy the purity and the pleasure of God that he lavishes on us because it is a is a wonderful thing and it is the core message of this salvation and it's why we uh, sing and praise God it's why we pray and read scripture it's why we get together because of this core aspect of the gospel and if you are not living in that place of uh, serenity and if you are not, not living in that place of hopeful expectancy, then perhaps you need to revisit these truths and again allow them to uh, soak into your inner being. Excellent. So this is a portrait of William uh, Dampier. Anyone heard of William Dampier? Excellent. So this dude, he lived in the 17th century. Um, He lived at a time um, where the boundaries of the mapped world were kind of being pushed. Lived in a time of uh, explorers and pirates and buccaneers. Um, And uh, there were constantly new discoveries for even the ignorant who just had a strong arm and a lot of money. And and so he made a number of different excursions out. And um, I'm going to read to you this sort of uh, introduction to uh, the book. Okay. One day in September 1683, in Cape Verde Islands off the west coast of Africa, uh, William Dampier lay obscured among the scrubby vegetation to do some bird watching. He was excited. He had just caught sight, um, his first sight, of flamingos. The detail and delicacy of his descriptions would gladden any modern ornithologist. The flamingos were much like a heron in shape. 
though bigger and of reddish colour, and in such numbers that from a distance they appeared like a brick wall, their feathers being of the colour of new red brick. They nested in shallow ponds where there is much mud, which they scrape together, making small hillocks like small islands, where they live a small hollow to lay their eggs. They never lay more than two eggs. The young ones are at first of light grey. Then, as a practical and hungry 17th century sailor, and to the probable revulsion of an ornithologist, Dampier noted that the bird's culinary qualities were thus. The flesh is lean and black, yet very good meat. Their tongues have a large knob of fat at the root, which is an excellent dish, um, fit for a prince's table. I think uh, Chessington World of Adventures might have something to say to you if uh, you tried that. Uh, Dampierre also observed the movements of the tides, currents and winds around the island, meticulously recording them in his journal. He would later use data to draw far-reaching conclusions about their behaviour and the relationships between them. However, he would fail to mention that while he was deep in these worthy scientific observations, his companions were otherwise engaged in plotting to seize a better ship for the piratical voyage to the South Seas in which they and Dampier were bound. So he was also a pirate as well as this uh, scientist. And it goes on. Dampier's understanding and mapping of winds and currents were pioneering. James Cook. Anyone heard of the explorer James Cook? Yeah, yeah good. Horatio Nelson, have we heard of him? Yeah. Excellent. Your uh, teachers are breathing a sigh of relief, perhaps in their graves, I don't know. Um, James Cook and Horatio Nelson studied his methods and used his maps. He, not Cook, was the first Englishman to lead an expedition to Australia to document its wildlife. His work as a naturalist influenced Alexander von Humboldt and Charles Darwin who used his acute observations and detailed descriptions as building blocks for his theories. Humboldt admired the remarkable English buccaneer, to whose works he thought the subsequent studies of great European scholars, naturalists and travellers had added little. Although born nearly a century after Dampier's death, Darwin found his work a mine of information and felt so familiar with Dampier that he often referred to him affectionately as old Dampier in his diary. So we find this uh, uh, incredibly um, important uh, guy, William Dampier, in the, uh, in the annals, of, an, annals of history. And he's kind of exploring and, 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 and pushing the boundaries of sort of uh, the, um, the English knowledge of the world. The thing is, he is essentially kind of like a spokesman for all of humanity, because all he did was observe and make notes. He didn't create or make or do anything other than to learn what was out there already. And I think this is true for all humanity. We are pushed without a buy or leave into life. I don't know if anywhere else of you voted to be alive, but I certainly didn't. Um, and we're pushed into life, and our senses are bombarded with all sorts of information. And we are bombarded by all this stuff, and we have to try and make sense of it. You know, all these colours and lights and objects and shapes, and they uh, assault our senses, and, and we uh, work really hard to see 
how they all fit in and come together. And as we live and as we move, um, we construct patterns. What's a solid shape? What's not a solid shape? What's a, a gas and, and what are good colours and, uh, and this, that and the other? And as we learn, as we see, as we take in information, we sometimes dabble in planning and scheming. We start to anticipate how things are going to work out. You may have come out this morning to church and looked up at the sky and thought, you know what, that sky looks like it did before when it rained. And you know what, I'm going to plan by putting on a coat. Or you may have looked at the glorious sun and thought, you know what, it's going to be shorts weather, I'm pretty sure of that. Um, but our whole lives are part of of this process of looking at the information of life, trying to piece it together, and then making often spurious plans uh, about what the future holds. And it's really easy to take this understanding how we live and project it onto God. And to think that this is how God operates, that God is in the undergrowth with his binoculars, looking at the future, and then making plans and schemes uh, in response to that, it's very easy to see uh, God thinking, oh, you know what? Kevin's going to write off his car um, at the age of 20. I better bless him at 21 with some money so that he can buy another one or curse him so that he doesn't do it again. Um, but that is not what we're told God is like. Peter tells us God is not like that at all. He doesn't look across history and the future and then plan in response to it. It is something more deliberate and more beautiful and more hard to conceive. Um, Peter told us in his letter that Jesus the Lamb was intended. It was deliberate. It was planned, that it was not an emergency measure to make up for something that God didn't expect. It was something fuller and more beautiful. Turn with me to another moment Peter talks about this. Have a look in uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. So this is Peter speaking after the Holy Spirit's come and uh, uh, done some crazy things amongst the, those first Christians. And it says this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The plan of salvation is not a game of drafts or chess where we do something wrong and then God goes, oh man, I'm going to have to sort that one out. And then he moves a piece and then we screw something else up and then he has to sort of work out a solution to that one again. Um, That's often how we can see God, where he's sort of just looking at the future and kind of working out how can he undo and remedy all the things that we do wrong. Peter wants you to know that is not how God operates. Jesus was not a repair patch for a surprise puncture in the inner tube of history. Jesus is the deliberate and glorious purpose of everything he brought forth. Right at the beginning, before um, creation came about, God had in mind Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Before anything happened, God planned the cross. When we hear what Peter has to say, this should change how we see everything. At the very, very basic level, you know those suspicions that you've always had that life isn't random, that whatever the scientists and philosophers say, that there seems to be something going on in creation that goes beyond the random throw of a dice again and again. That there is something more going on than just a collision of molecules. And Peter says, yes. Peter says, it's part of God's plan. That suspicion you had that there is meaning to life, that is right because God is in control of it. In turn, when we suddenly realise that life is not a random collection of events, but part of this divinely planned story, um, it should ultimately cause us to trust in Jesus, because suddenly that suspicion we had seems to be echoed in how God does things. And suddenly this Jesus that was planned from the beginning, go, well, that would make sense if that was true. Suddenly, we get to join the lines and go, oh, right, that's, that's how it works. Yes, I can see why that is right. And hopefully, most of us in this room have heard this gospel and said, you know what? I don't think life is meaningless and random. I don't think it's just subject to various different forces and that we're all accidents, that there is something more to that. And that when someone tells us there is a God that's planned this, we kind of go, that makes more sense than anything else. And then... (laughs) So, we are taking along this journey and then suddenly when someone says, and, and, and Jesus is the plan for it all, it suddenly goes, we suddenly make sense of it, and it seems real. 
The universe is intelligible. When we look out and name stars, when we see their patterns in the sky, that was always intended by God. Morality is not an artificial thing that we've created, but morality is real and important. And that thing that we find in, in Scripture, that goodness counts, that is not just everyone lives for themselves and make up their own rules, that there are hard and fast rules as to what is right and wrong, we are taken along that journey. And we suddenly hear not only is right and wrong true, but a remedy has been provided. That even though that we know right and wrong exists and we keep choosing wrong, that God has made a remedy for that bias in our lives. So life is not random. And Jesus is the answer that we've always looked for. But there is some other observations that is good to take on board. You and I, in this story, we are not accidental or trivial. Other people may have said you're accidental or trivial. You may feel it sometimes as you look at other people's lives. And you may feel like you're an unimportant part of the story. But we're told in Scripture that when God planned this creation... He planned the people that he would populate it with. And he has in mind each one of us. If God knows the number of hairs on our head, then he knows the part that he has to play for us. And if this is so, if we are important to the story, if we are important to God, we have a duty to perceive God's purpose for us. If God had planned this story and put us in it, then we get to look out for what God has designed for us. We don't get to just make it up ourselves, going, you know what, I think God would really have me do this, when that was never his intention. The skills and uh, life situation and everything else was that he wanted something else. And so we have a duty to discern and chase after the niche God has zeroed in for each one of us. Another implication is that whatever we endure in life, we must recognise that God's hand is there too. Now, Barry was very honest and frank with us earlier and just saying, you know what, um, life is not throwing him uh, Danish pastries at the moment. You know, it's a bit of a struggle. But there is this understanding that God's hand is there. Sometimes it is difficult to perceive. Sometimes it's upsetting that good God could be there and still allow all this bad stuff to exist. But this idea of a story planned before any matter came into being means that even in Barry's story right now, God's hand is there and it can be perceived. And this means, in turn, that we have some reactions to make. Sometimes... When it all goes pear-shaped, that knowledge that it is all part of God's story means that we retain peacefulness. 
Because while everyone else is losing their head because they just see chaos reign, we don't do that. We can have a peace because we know God's hand is in there. When cancer and famine and um, sort of relationship breakdown hit us and we kind of feel overwhelmed by it, there is this knowledge that God has got this story planned and it is in his hands and we can have a peace about it while everyone else loses their heads. Sometimes when chaos happens, it's because we've made really bad decisions Um, and God allows those bad decisions to have consequences. When um, uh, something when that rabbit ran out in front of the road, in front of me in the road, um, when I was coming back from uh, my girlfriend's at the time in the car, and I decided oh, I'm going to try and veer uh, around it um, in the wet and uh, and suitably crashed my car. There were consequences, and I had to pick up the pieces. It wasn't a case of oh God, why didn't you save me? It was a case of there are consequences to your actions, and sometimes. Um, life, we are reaping the consequences of our own actions and we have to um, take responsibility for that and deal with that. Sometimes uh, bad things happen and it's good just to have peace. Sometimes bad things happen and you go, you know what, God, I screwed up. I've made this bed that you've let me lie in and there is a process of repentance and, and trying to go through with God Uh, what went wrong. Sometimes, when things go pear-shaped, this understanding of God's story means that we have to get involved. We have to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. Um, there is this wonderful moment in the story of Esther where there is this promise that all her people are going to be uh, killed um, by this sort of rival in the temple courts. And Esther's kind of weighing up, oh, you know, what can I do? And she is told, you know, it is for such a time as this that you were born. And sometimes when things go wrong, it is an opportunity for us to say, you know, God's got this story planned, something's going wrong, and I have an opportunity to stand up. Um, you may not feel like this, but I have a, um, a certain affection for those that um, are sensitive to the condition of our planet. And there is a, uh, a lot going on in London. Um, what's the group called? Extinction... Extinction Rebellion. So they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff like blocking off uh, bridges and gluing themselves together. And um, that may have no, uh, uh, may no it, it may ring no sensibilities in you. And you may just think, these guys are loonies. We should just get on with living so I can drive my car and uh, you all the fossil gases before they run out. But I would quite like to take my kids sometimes to these different events to say, you know what, when something happens, whether it's small or big we have an opportunity to speak out that when God says he's got a story planned, history is full of people that says, you know what, 
this is an opportunity for me to say something. I don't need you all to uh, head off to London and block off bridges, but this understanding that God planned this story from the beginning means that we have our parts to play. And yours might not be to glue your hands to Francis in front of the shell building to stop people going in and out of, but we are encouraged to participate. We are encouraged not to be apathetic. We are encouraged not to be lazy, but to uh, be counted for. I love the fact that um, Bianca is part of this sort of streetlight organisation and sort of Barry is part of Lighthouse and, and Kev has done street pastors that people have seen a need and thought, you know what, I could just sit and watch... Uh, Netflix at home, or I could do something about it. And this idea of story has all sorts of implications. And it is not to sit down and be lazy and just be a consumer in life. Let me read the next bit of uh, Dampierre. So they had reached a land on the edge of the known world. Dampier wrote in his first book, It is not yet determined whether it is an island or a main continent, but I am certain that it joins neither Asia, Africa, nor America. Avoiding whirlpools and tideresses, they anchored in the southwest corner of the wide bay now called King Sound. That day in January 1688, Dampierre gazed on a low, even land with sandy banks against the sea. It looked like an arid, unforgiving landscape. Spying men walking along the shore, the buccaneers eagerly dispatched a canoe. They hoped to barter for provisions, but as the canoe approached the beach, the men ran off and hid. Frustrated, uh, the frustrated buccaneers searched for them for three days, but found no inhabitants nor houses just the cooling ashes of abandoned fires. They finally gave up, though they left great many toys ashore in such places where they thought they would, uh, these guys would come. Their search for ready supplies of fresh water proved fruitless. There was no flowing streams or tumbling brooks, nor did there seem to be anything to eat. There were trees as big as apple trees, but none bore fruit. A few birds hopped about their branches, and among the thin, tough, and spindly grasses, there was little sign of any animals, no fat hogs or cattle. The only tracks were the tread of a beast, like a mastiff dog. And that's uh, essentially uh, dingo tracks. Um, and, and so Dampier makes this, uh, sort of makes these inroads into Australia, and he just finds it a miserable Place. He talks about um, the people um, living in Australia as the uh, most miserable people in the world. He found nothing to redeem it. Over time, our perception of Australia has changed. If I could fly anyone free of charge next week to Australia, would anyone want to go? Yeah, it's quite an interesting place. I've seen neighbours, and it looks a land of lush bounty. I've seen loads of different surf films, and I fancy going and enjoying the waves. Um, there are uh, bountiful vineyards and herds of cattle. Dampier's perception of Australia 
was shallow and wrong. Humans are good at that. We look at something and make a decision about it and find later on that we have completely missed it. Almost anything we write down or say or decide on gets to be revised in a, in a few years. Um, a lot of scientific discovery is changed, scribbled out, amended and added to over the years because it is not the full picture. Peter tells us that we're freed by this Lamb of God, that Jesus was a deliberate and heavenly climax. In verse 21, Peter tells us that this freedom and the plan that came along with it are the means by which we trust God. We don't trust God because we've suddenly seen the light. You know, you get a warm feeling in your belly when someone speaks to you about Jesus, and then you suddenly uh, go, I must trust this Jesus. You don't um, intellectually weigh up the evidence for and against God and then go, you know what? I think God is real, looking at this from a scientific perspective. We are neither pure enough to see God clearly, nor are we clever enough to see him. When Dampier looked at Australia, he was full of European prejudices of what a healthy, bountiful land looked like, and Australia did not look like that. But his assessment of Australia was wrong. Similarly, when we look at God out of our uh, own perspective, we are clouded by all sorts of conflicting things. We have greed and arrogance and bigotry, just to say a few. If any salvation was rested on how we saw and understood God, it would fail. Because we are very good at doing that. The only secure redemption that we can count on is one that doesn't rely on us. Where we are not the key ingredient, where we are not the main thing we are frail fallen beings and if salvation depended on our decision we are scuppered and screwed and so peter uh, ends this passage today by pointing out that our belief in god is an outcome of god's careful scheming and working in creation jesus was sent for our sake and is the glory of God. And the community that he founded is not something we can opt in and out of. On a Sunday morning, you can choose, choose to go to a church meeting or you can choose not to. But that is just the outward sign of an inward reality. You are either in God's kingdom or you are out of it. And that is God doing that thing. If I hadn't waffled on so much earlier, I had a beautiful passage from Isaiah to read. Uh, but I'm going to bring it to a close. Our individual salvation is just one component of a glorious, far-reaching story that started before the first atom came to be. 
It is gathering momentum and pace towards the climax of history. You are being swept up in the most beautiful move of God the world has ever seen. You may think um, that uh, God owes you or that you have made a choice to follow him, but he chose you before the beginning of time. He planned for Edward and uh, Peter and Tim to choose him before anything happened. We are being swept up and brought into this kingdom where our little uh, wobbles of doubt and sin, those don't affect it because it is God's awesome wave of his kingdom that he's bringing us forward on. Our trust is not in an idea or a concept or a religion or a code of ethics but in a God who sent, raised, and exalted Jesus. And so I think simply my parting words to you today is that Peter would have us be encouraged. This planned for and assured redemption is nothing less than what we completely need, and we should find immense peace and joy in the truths that he brings. Please close your eyes and bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another piece of scripture. We thank you for the truth and illumination it brings by your Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that we stand at this point in history, not randomly and meaningless, not left to our own devices, but part of this epic narrative that you set in place even before matter was formed. Lord God, I pray that we would uh, imbibe and take in the majesty of this idea and that we would live in accordance with it, that we would enjoy the salvation that Jesus has secured for us and rest easily in it and that in that place of redemption that we would live uh, deliberate lives that are both peaceful and active. Lord God, um, I just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.